turn to Habakkuk. I want to tell you a little bit about Habakkuk. This is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, and I think I've been thinking about it probably because I live in the same world that you live in, and you've probably been wondering the same thing too. We're actually going to be in chapter 3, and we can help dissect it together this morning because I think it's going to be really fun for us. But let me give you, let me, let me give you a little bit of background um, and a little bit of context so we can take a running start at this, and then I'm going to set you guys loose, and we're going to... We're going to observe some things together here that will be helpful. First, let's pray. Dear God, thank you for people like Habakkuk or Habakkuk or however you say his name. Thank you that he lived in a world that was just as or maybe more scary than our world is today. Thank you that he wrestled with the same questions. Thank you that he questioned you and he um, had some very frank and blunt dialogue with you and thank you that you saw fit to put that in our Bibles. Thank you, Lord, for the humanity that's divinely inspired in our Bibles. And I pray, God, that you would give us comfort today and help us look through this world with the same lens that Habakkuk looked through his world. And I pray this in, you guide us through this study in Jesus' name, amen. Um, Habakkuk lived um, somewhere between 640 and 615 BC, um, very close to Babylon's invasion of the southern kingdom of Israel and Jerusalem. That happened in 586 BC. And um, Habakkuk saw that thing coming. It was only a few decades off of it actually coming to pass. He saw that coming. He saw that Babylon would... rise up and revolt against the Assyrians and against Nineveh. He saw that they would take over. He saw that they would come down, that they would invade uh, Israel and Jerusalem. But here's what makes, um, so a lot of prophets saw that. A lot of the minor prophets saw that. But here's what makes Habakkuk so unique. Nowhere in his book do you ever see him prophesying to people. You don't see him saying, thus saith the Lord to you, Israel, or to you, Babylon. That's all the minor prophets. They're speaking to people. Woe is you. They're confronting. They're they're bringing the word of God. Instead, um, Habakkuk is addressed to God himself. It is a back and forth conversation between Habakkuk and God. And it's written in a really interesting poetic genre. It's called lament. You know what it means to, you know, there's a whole, another prophet wrote Lamentations, his name's Jeremiah, and it's this grief. It's a lament, it's sadness, it's a complaint, it's a grievance. That's the poetic uh, kind of genre that we're dealing with here. And interestingly enough, Um, There's a structure to this poetic genre of lament. There's actually three steps to a a lamenting poem in the Bible. Number one, the first step is you lodge a complaint to God. That's number one. This is what it, if you want to know how to lament well, if you've got something going on in your life or some injustice that you see, or maybe you're scared about something and you want to, you want to bring this to God in a great way, follow this structure. First, you lodge a complaint. That's number one. 
This is happening. Secondly, you'll see um, Habakkuk draws God's attention to the complaint. He says, don't you see? Don't you see? And then thirdly, you demand that God does something about it. That sounds very presumptuous of us, doesn't it? And yet that's what you can find this in Habakkuk, you can find this in Job, you can find this in the, what we call the imprecatory psalms, where David or other psalmists are grieving about something, and the structure is basically the same. First, they lodge a complaint. I'm mad because of this. Secondly, they ask God, they, they call him to, to notice. Look at it. Don't you see? Look at this. Are you seeing what's happening here? And thirdly, they demand that God does something about it. And knowing this lament structure is really helpful for um, Habakkuk because it's actually the key to unlocking the book, if you understand that structure. Chapters one and two are a back and forth argument between Habakkuk and God, okay? The, the prophet lodges two complaints and there are two responses. That's how it works. It's a very, it's a very um, easy structure to see. He lodges two complaints. His first complaint is that life in Israel has become just horrible. <laughs> That's his first complaint. He says, you can read about this in your first four verses, chapter, uh, verses one through four. Look, look uh, let's just, well, let me just show you. This is so great. I, did you notice my, my table? Isn't that nice? Because the pulpit was angled. I couldn't click it. St- anyways, it doesn't matter, but I'm feeling like we're cruising right now. Okay, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for your help? And you don't listen. Have you ever felt that way? I cry out to you, violence. That was perfect. (laughs) I call out to you, violence, but you don't save. You ever feel that way? You're not doing anything here. I've been calling out to you and you're silent. I've been asking you to do something but you don't save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? It's pretty blunt. Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law, that's the word Torah in the Hebrew, the law is paralyzed. In other words, it's doing no good because it's being neglected. And because the Torah is being neglected, Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. In other words, because no one's upholding the law, there's anarchy. There's no, uh, society is falling apart. It's unraveling because there's no, no one, everyone's ignoring your word. They're ignoring the law. And then there's God's response. God tells um, In verses five through 11, he says that he's very aware of the corruption that's within his own people, and he's going to do something about it. He's summoning this other nation, this nation called Babylon. He's gonna summon them, and he's gonna raise them up, and he's gonna send them against his own people to judge Israel through this other nation, Babylon. That's God's response. Do you think Habakkuk is happy with that response? or not happy with that response. He's not happy with that response. His, he goes back again. Habakkuk has a problem with this answer, so he brings another complaint. This is 
uh, verses 12 through 2, verse 1, where he says, but Babylon is worse than Israel. They're more corrupt. They're more violent. They have uh, deified their military power. They build their, their, they build their wealth on the backs of the poor. They exploit people's weaknesses. You think the Assyrians were violent, and boy, they were. I mean, history records that they took it to another level when it came to violence and brutality. But the Babylonians, they're just as bad. And this is the premise of the, this is, if you want to, if you want to know the question, if you want to boil it down into Habakkuk's question, maybe it's a question that you struggle with. I think, you sh- I think it, makes, it would make sense if you did. How can I trust that you are good when you use evil to do your will? That is Habakkuk's problem. That's what he's bringing to God. How can I trust that you are a holy, good God when you use evil? I mean, this is, this, this is a lot of your story on an individual level. There's a, there's a confusing thing in your past where God did use it for your good, and yet you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. If you, if you had, or have you heard of people that have had situations like that? I was raised in this traumatic, dysfunctional, abusive environment that hurt me so deeply. Yeah, God used it. But how can I possibly say I was grateful for that? It's just confusing to its core. And on one hand, I feel like we should be comforted to know that God just flat out puts the stuff in his Bible. He just says, look, it's right there. Habakkuk is going, you know, oy vey, what is a Jewish person? Oy vey, what's going on here? How can I trust that you're good and holy? And he, um, God's response, God, this is in chapter two, verse two on. We're gonna make our way to our text here. It's a short little book. It's only three chapters long. God tells Habakkuk to get out some tablets. <clears throat> Sorry, I should probably move along with you. I mean, you got it up there, Mike. You might as well use it. And the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets. So he tells him to get out some tablets, chisel and write down what he sees and hears. And the, if we were to keep going through this, he sees this vision of an appointed time in the future. Now, I want you to, this is gonna frame all of life for us because this is an ongoing theme from the Exodus on all the way into the New Testament to the book of Hebrews. There's an event in the future that he says, Habakkuk, you are to wait for this event in the future, this event where I'm gonna make all wrongs right, this event where I'm gonna come and I'm gonna, I'm gonna judge Babylon as well. Because Babylon, in the minor prophets, but especially in Habakkuk, becomes kind of a generic nation to, enca- to, encaps- uh, to represent all human evil. Same with Gog and Magog in Ezekiel. It kind of, it, it is an actual place and an actual region, but it grows metaphorically in the text to represent all evil regimes. And basically what he tells Habakkuk here is that because of sin, all human nations become a Babylon. Because of the corruption that's in mankind and in the hearts of man, 
all, most all, all regimes become kind of Babylon-esque. And there will come a day in the future that God will make it right. And you're supposed to wait for that. So here's what I want to tell you. Um, well, and we'll see this in a, in a bit, but the, um, the nation of Israel is set free out of Egypt, the Babylon of the time, if you would. They're set free out of the slavery. And they're immediately thrust into what? A wilderness, yes, the wilderness where they travel. So they're, they, they're leaving point A and they're in transit to point B. And this is what God is telling Habakkuk. You want this place to be heaven, but it's not. You're, this, is, this is a wilderness. That's what this is. Let me ask you, what are some things that happen in a wilderness? And think wilderness without, don't think glamping. Don't even think camping. Think back then without what we've got. What, what, think, um, think when the West was being settled. What do you got out in the wilderness? Hunger and starvation. Yes, absolutely. Yes, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, yes. Dave? Yeah, there's no market, there's no economy. Yeah. What's that? Yes, you get, right? Because there's so much pressure, right? I mean, it brings out the worst in you. Yeah. What's that? There's no law. Yes. There's no one, there's no law. There's no order. It, it, it's, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Weather extremes. Absolutely. Um, now, let me say this. Biblically, it's kind of a mixed bag, right? Because in the wilderness, there were points of, of God's intervention. There were miracles. There were provisions. There were good things happening. Yeah, you remember, we're hungry, and this, you know, um, honeycombs came up on the, every morning on the ground. Manna. Manna literally means, what is it? But it was this bread-like you know, Paul would have loved it. It was the bread-like substance with some honey in there, and they would, they would gather it, and they would eat it, right? Jesus, Jesus um, tagged onto that in chap, John chapter 6 when he said, I am the bread of life. I'm the one that sustained them through the wilderness. So these beautiful things happened. What else happened? They got sick of manna, and then, so what did God send? Quail, yeah. I mean, just right in the, in the strike zone, they could just right there and eat it. What else happened? What's that? Water, yes, water. Think of this. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people by the time they left and their cattle. We're not talking about, you know, Moses touches this rock miraculously and this little comes out and people have to. We're talking about a gusher that would sufficiently quench the thirst of a nation. So, miraculous stuff, encounters with God, all of those things. But at the same moment, or at the same season, people died. It wasn't a happy ending for, for everybody. That's kind of the wilderness, isn't it? It's a mixed bag where it's on, on, on the sum, this, and the Bible would say, this is where you're at right now. For us, what's behind us is the past, is Jesus dying on the cross, but we're moving through, we're pilgrims, we're moving through, this is where Hebrews would pick this up, Hebrews chapter four specifically, and we're moving to, to the promised land. 
And this is what frames, we're in the wilderness, so when we see that Putin invades Ukraine and we see an earthquake that takes out 12,000 people, like that, when we see disease that takes out our friends, when we go through heartache and betrayal and we go through marriage problems and our kids disobey and, and walk away from God and on and on and on it goes, the Bible would say, hey, remember, you're in a wilderness right now. It's the wild, wild west out here. So what does God tell him to do? Look at this. He says, but the righteous, it's a famous, famous verse. The, the New Testament quotes it, I think, three times. It was Martin Luther's favorite verse. But the righteous will live by faith. God is saying to Habakkuk, in this in-between time, in this wilderness time, those who are right with me live by faith. Live by faith. That's the key. For those of you that are traversing, that are transient, that are pilgrims moving through, that would be all of us as if, if you're a follower of Jesus. You dare not set up camp here. Number one, in a wilderness, the moment you die or start dying is the moment you think, I should try to live here. The moment you stop, one of my favorite quotes from Winston Churchill in World War II is that if you find yourself in hell, keep moving. <laughs> I love that quote. It's so true. Because the wilderness is not a place that you set up camp. The moment you think, this is what, this here is life. This is what it's all about. That's the moment you're going to start being very disappointed. My friend um, Brady, who is now passed in, in heaven, passed away. This 21-year-old young man that recently passed away. He said that he wanted to live because he had so many more adventures. That's what he said on his deathbed. And so here's the thing. We hear that and it just rocks us. Obviously, we lament. And that's okay. That's, God doesn't rebuke Habakkuk for feeling this way. Same with Job, same with the imprecatory Psalms. You never see God saying, how dare you feel that way? How dare you say that? No, it's there. But God's response is, hey, you will see your son again. That's real. To the Bible, there's a, distant, there's a future destination that is not just something fun that we say. It's real. It's real. And Brady right now is having the most grand adventures of his life. That's real. Now, can you imagine not having that faith in this world? It makes my heart go out to folks that don't take the Bible seriously. It makes my heart go out to folks that, don't, that are living in the same world that I'm living in, but that think this is all it is. This is all there is. I think no wonder people give up. I think I would too. No wonder. I mean, you want to know how this, real this is. And no wonder people ditch their spouse and go on to somebody else. If this is, well, I only, have, I only got one shot at romance. One shot. This is all I've got. So I'm going to bounce because this is hard and I'm going to go find somebody else. What's going on? God would say, you think that this is home. It's not. It's a wilderness. 
And everything you're really longing for is over there, is at this future destination. If you find yourself in hell, keep moving. (laughs) Keep going and live by faith. That's the idea. Okay. Well, let's go to chapter three. Let's see what what he sees. So Habakkuk's not too terribly stoked about that one either. So he he ushers this incredible... prayer. Let me read it to you. You can follow up, follow on here. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on, I don't know how to say that word, Shigianoth. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I want you, I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. What a beautiful line this is. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, probably a conflation with Mount Sinai. And then there's this thing way over here. It's this word Selah. Now here's what that means. It's like a musical note that means the rest, except it's more than that. Uh, in our, uh, if you were to read a sheet of music and you were to see this note, it means to pause. But for them, it meant to stop and think about what was just said. In other words, don't keep reading yet. Stop and think about it. Meditate on what was just said. So let's do it. Let's go back. I want you to think about this. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His, holy, his glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. Selah. What do you notice? Let's think about this. Okay, so it could be a reference to creation, yeah. It's got to be a reference to something in the past, right? Because he's already complained throughout the book that it's not that way right now. And then he says, he starts referring, God came. I've heard of your fame, right? Yeah. Oh, it reminds you, yeah, it reminds you of uh, the prayer of Jesus. Yeah, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's kind of a surrendered type of a deal. Yeah, Absolutely. Remind anybody of, what do you think he's referring to in the past? Mount Sinai is where they made the covenant. It's where they became a nation and where they cut covenant with God. Absolutely. And where did they just come out of? So he's dealing with Babylon. That's the evil of his day, but he's remembering another evil empire. Egypt. Yeah, absolutely. They had just been set free out of Egypt. An insurmountable foe. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard of that. He says, God... I stand in awe of you. I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. And then he's saying, do it again. Do that again right now. We need a little bit of that right now. You've done it before. Do it again. Right? God came from Timon, 
the Holy One from Mount Paran. That's in the desert. That's actually right on the border of Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea, but there's overlap with the Sinai, with the Sinai Desert, the Paran Desert. But um, this is also a reference um, when he says Mount Paran. There was no Mount Paran. It was just the Paran Desert. So it's probably a reference to Mount Sinai. Um, And notice, of course, the Hebrew parallelism. God came from Timon. The Holy One came from Mount Paran. That's that's a Hebrew parallel uh, classic poetry. Uh, You might think, well, it doesn't rhyme. (laughs) And you might think, well, it must have rhymed in Hebrew. No, it actually doesn't rhyme in Hebrew either. Hebrew people rhyme ideas, not vowels. They rhyme ideas. So that's why you got this pairing. God, Holy One, Taman, Mount Paran. Okay? He'll do it again. His glory covered the heavens. His praise filled the earth. See, they're rhyming ideas. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays of flashing from his hand were his power. What do we see here? Look at plagues went before him. What's that remind you of? Plagues of Egypt? Yeah. What's he doing here? He's remembering how God has dealt with other evil things and other evil regimes. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. Do you remember when they were at, the, at Mount Sinai? And uh, this is chapter 19 of Exodus and the glory of God came down on the mountain. This is mankind. You don't see like what you, like if you went into an evangelical church on a Sunday morning, like, like ours, you don't see people at the mount here with their lattes, just comfortable as can be looking over at the snacks. No, no, it was a scary experience. When was the last time you were scared to go to church because you knew the presence of God was there? We don't think like, I don't get up in the morning and go, you know, the people here, they went to Moses and they said, you talk to him. (laughs) We don't, he's, whoa, it's, you know, it's earth shakes, it's lightning striking, the earth is shaking apart here. I mean, this is, this is God, this is God. Imagine that. Shake you to your core kind of thing. Very, very uncomfortable kind of thing. He made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled. The age-old hills collapsed. In other words, when God shows up, you better believe it, people will notice. He's not missed here. People know something's going on. His ways are eternal. It's not like people from the nation of Israel walked away and said, what do you think? Do you think that was God? It could, you know, maybe it was this. Maybe we were, it was the mushrooms we ate. Maybe, it was, you know, whatever. <laughs> they knew. There was just, it was not controversial. God is here. He stood. The earth shook. He looked and made the nations tremble, the ancient mountains. And he goes on. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. These are both desert places were you angry with the rivers oh God, oh lord was your wrath against the streams what are you guys thinking about what's that make you think what's that maybe the red sea except he's, what's what's another river that parted jordan yeah 
Yeah, so maybe this is a reference to going in and taking the promised land, maybe? Here it is. Did you rage against the sea? Mm-hmm. When you strode with your horses and your victorious chariots? What's that making you think of? The Exodus, yeah, right. This is very Exodus language. You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. Selah. So wait, he's saying stop. Think. Meditate. What's that? Eden? Garden of Eden. Okay, where are you seeing that? Okay, oh, you're saying about the, the four rivers that came out of Eden? Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that could, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe. The mountains, the mountains saw you and writhed. I'm still thinking of the Exodus. The mountains are, you know, where he's quaking the mountain and it shook. Torrents of water swept by. Another uh, reference to either the Jordan or the Red Sea. Um, think of these plagues. God used Egypt, but he also... And remember, remember, what's so confusing about, what's the big conundrum about the Exodus story? Do you remember Pharaoh that he's let my people go, but there's these really uh, frustrating verses in there that say, but God hardened his heart so that Pharaoh would not let him go? We were like, what do we do with that? <clears throat> Actually, I think there's six of them. Six references, three of which, I think it's almost half and half. Half are Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then the other half, and I'd have to go back and look or you can go and check me on this. But there's, there's a ratio of Pharaoh hardening his own heart and then God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And the idea is this kind of exchange. It's since you're going to harden your heart, I'm going to use that momentum. I'm going to use the evil that you're choosing to get my way done. And plagues were sent. And this was all part of God's plan, of course. What else are you guys thinking about? Anything else? I don't want to move on if, if you've got something to share. I'm thinking about Noah's flood. Okay. Explain. The ancient mountains crumbled and the angel mm. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Same idea, right? The earth was, so let's talk about that story with Noah. The earth was wicked, human evil abounded. God regretted that he made them. There's that horrible, this is, this is uh, chapter six and seven of Genesis. You know, he regretted that he made them. And so he's gonna send water just like um, Exodus. There, water has this judgment and salvific kind of dual function. It reminds me of um, what we saw in the very beginning here, um, this beautiful phrase, in wrath, remember your mercy. Another way that the Bible doesn't seem to mind putting two ideas together that we usually consider two separate things, the Bible does not seem to mind kind of squeezing them together. They're not the same thing, but they, they're like friends that hold hands. Sometimes it's merciful to show wrath. And sometimes wrath is merciful. There's this idea. Water kind of has the same symbol in the Bible, doesn't it? With Noah, he's punishing, judging the evil, but he's also saving mankind at the same time. 
with Exodus, with the Exodus, he's judging wicked Egypt, but saving wicked Israel at the same time. But they've got the the blood over their mantle. That, that's what escapes them. Here we go to Habakkuk's day, and God's gonna use a, a foreign nation to judge his own people because they're not exempt. He's an equal opportunity judger God. You know, he, he's like, no one's out of this. Yeah, good thought. Absolutely. Any, anyone else? Reminds you of who? Cain, like as in Cain and Abel? Yeah. Okay, great, explain. So, <clears throat> yep. So you're saying there's mercy, mer- mercy, there's mercy and punishment there. Yeah, you'll, yeah, great. Anyone else? Yes, yeah, yep, mm-hmm. And here's my point. This language is evoking what? A story. He's putting his current trouble in the context of the redemptive story, and he's finding hope because of that. In fact, let me just skip to the end. I mean, you could do this. We could do this all day. But let me just skip to the end. Look, at, look what happens after he does all this remembering, say, lying, remembering, say, lying, remembering, meditating on. First of all, he's not going very fast. He's stopping and thinking. And look at the end. If I can get there. Um, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, is his head in the sand here? No. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, look what he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Now wait a second. This is an agrarian society. What is, this, what is this describing in an agrarian society? Economic collapse, absolutely. Famine, economic collapse. And what we know happened was Babylon came and they surrounded the area, cut off their food and water, and they starved them out before they came in and, and uh, destroyed the city. I think it was three waves of invasion and they came and destroyed the city. And look, so in the midst of, so at the end of this prayer, the prayer is not answered in a sense. At the end of this prayer and this thinking and meditating, things are still the same. He says, okay, the fig tree is still, there's still no money in the bank. The economy is still collapsing. Balloons are still flying over, whatever they are up there, or small car object things that we're shooting down. All of these things are happening. Russia's still invading. China's still plotting something. Whatever. All of these things are still going on. It's still happening. My prayers aren't, but because I've been meditating, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'm trying to... 
I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. In other words, here's what he's saying. This is not heaven. This is the wilderness. And and horrible stuff happens in the wilderness. There's no figs on the trees. There's no money in the bank. Nations are rising up. They're all a big Babylon. They're super evil. They're greedy. They're building their wealth on the back of slaves. There's all sorts of injustice. Homelessness abounds. My marriage is hard. My kids are turning away. I just lost my job. It's because we're in a wilderness for the way. It doesn't make it any easier, but this is where we're at. He says, and yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in my God. Now, I want you to, here's what I'm trying to get at. This did not come easy. This here, I will rejoice in the Lord, only came after all of this. All of this. What do I mean by all of this? In the middle of it all, Habakkuk slowed down and used his little gray cells. He thought. Do you know, did you know that the Bible has more to do with how, what you think and how you think than it does with how you feel? And look what happened. He's sitting there and he's thinking, Selah, no, wait, let me think about this. And he remembers what happens to Egypt. And he remembers how God formed his nation out of a really evil regime. And he remembers how he led them through the wilderness. Or he remembers Noah being taken through the waters and landing on Mount Ararat. He remembers all of these things. And as he's sitting there, remembering, remembering, say lying, remembering, say lying, meditating, 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 it wells up and he starts to rejoice. That's the idea. And notice, he says, what is this here? What kind of language is that? Can you see it up there? What is it? Future. Yes, it is future. Well, I know this is now. I will rejoice. But what kind of language is I will? It's volitional. He's making a choice. It, it, in other words, it's not necessarily that he all of a sudden is just overcome with emotion. He's saying, because I'm thinking well, I will rejoice in the midst of this. I'm making a decision to rejoice. I'm making a decision to be joyful in God my Savior. I'm making a decision to believe in, where is it? Um, Somewhere in here, he talks about the anoint, oh, right there, the You know who this is? This is a reference to Mashiach, the Davidic king that will come. That's a future statement. Absolutely. To save your, you came out to deliver your people and to save your anointed one. It's a really simple point this morning and that is First of all, slow down and think. And think rightly. 
Don't let your emotions decide what is true. Challenge your emotions. Is this right? Oh, I, I only have one shot at romance, and this marriage is failing. Stop, slow down, and tell the story to yourself. What's the story? Oh, the romance I'm looking for is in a future place. There's no man or woman alive presently that can fulfill or scratch the itch that I'm really looking for. Therefore, this wilderness experience, even with my spouse, is preparing me for, my, to the, for the one that my heart is really longing for. You're putting, in, in context, and all of a sudden, your marriage has purpose. Even the hard stuff has purpose. You're being prepared, just like Israel was being prepared in the wilderness for the promised land. Didn't somebody say that? Uh, it took God a day to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took him 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Same with David, right? David had a wilderness. Saul didn't. Woo! And Saul's character faults ate him alive. David's will too, let me just say. But he went through a wilderness experience where God was preparing him in the wilderness to be king. So not only is this wilderness just where we're at, but it's preparatory. Whatever you're going through is preparatory. All the calamity that you have seen or maybe that we will see is preparatory. You know what that means? It means life is fraught with hope. Life is fraught with hope. God is using the evil going on to shape you, to mold you, to give you opportunities to grow your character. Or it's a wilderness, some die. I mean, let's, we just gotta be real. Some walk away. Some character takes over, depending on our choices in the wilderness. People grumbled in the wilderness, and remember what happened to those people. Hebrews says, I swore, God said, I swore in my wrath you will not enter my rest. And then Hebrews gives this really uncomfortable warning. That's what a warning is. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. They say, he, he says, um, beware lest any of you have an evil heart of unbelief. Unbelief. What are we supposed to do in the wilderness, folks? Two, four. The righteous in the wilderness will live by faith, belief. It's the word pistis in the Greek, or pisteo if it's a verb. And it's a whole-bodied word. It does not mean, in, we've, unfortunately, we've made it simply intellectual. It actually has more to do with allegiance, loyalty, than it does going to some camp or, you know, a, a, saying a prayer, I believe this, 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 and this. And now, like, when we get to heaven, the angel says, oh, yes, Mike Monje. Oh, that's right. Yep, yep, Montana. You came forward to that altar call. Check. Okay, come on in. That's not what it is. 
It's an allegiance to a king. Saying, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to live by faith. I'm going to follow you in this wilderness. And Jesus also, just to, he came, he came out of water in his baptism. He was led right into a wilderness to prepare him for a cross. And because of that cross, he was exalted. He was given, he was exalted in the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should, could, should confess. And he says to you and I, follow me. Follow me. What you want is, at the, is after the cross. What you want is resurrection. Right now is the time of the cross, so to speak. Live by faith. And faith makes everything have hope. I will see that person again. I will see Brady again. I will. And he'll show me around and say, you want to talk about adventures? Come with me. That is going to happen. It's not, it's not just something we say. It's real. It's real. In heaven, we'll all be there. Ah, oh, we made it. The promised land. Live by faith now. It gives us strength in this wilderness time.